the longer you do business and the more employees you have, the more it becomes about people. That's the voice of Cliff Spencer, co-owner of Alabama Sawyer. And I'm excited to talk with him and his co-owner, Lee Spencer, right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Lee and Cliff Spencer, co-owners of the Birmingham, Alabama-based furniture company, Alabama Sawyer. Being a good team means working together, figuring out your strengths and using them to balance out weaknesses. It sounds so easy, but the truth is, it isn't. It takes work. Hard, hard work. Lee and Cliff have been working on that balance for years, between their own skill sets and that of their employees, finding a way to bring everyone together to make the business run as smoothly as possible. Follow along as we talk about joining forces with like-minded companies, the importance of understanding your community, why you should always be telling your story, and much more. Lee and Cliff are a wealth of knowledge, so let's jump right in and hear their story in their own words. Well, try not to go back too far to give you my entire life story, but I was involved at an early age in the theater world. I loved theater, building sets, acting, uh, doing lights, and um, I studied that in college, then went to New York and did it in New York. And, but of course, you know, that was on the nights and never making any money in theaters. And so I talked my way into a wood shop uh, for Saks Fifth Avenue. Uh, At that time, mid nineties, Saks Fifth Avenue had a big production department down in the meatpacking district. And um, there was a huge wood shop, an upholstery shop, a finishing shop, all kinds of stuff, um, everything to make the displays in the main Fifth Avenue, uh, Saks Fifth Avenue store. And then once they were approved in the main store, we'd make multiples to send out all all over the country when there were Saks stores all over the country. All that's gone, of course, now. So industry changed. But that was my entrance into, you know, I had woodworking experience from the theater world, but really it was in the display design business that I started really learning a lot of different materials and using different tools and techniques. And so I worked for Saks until they sort of downsized that operation. I worked for other display designers, started working more in film for doing art direction and production design. 
that brought me to Los Angeles and was doing it more there. But in between films, I started working in wood shops and in metal shops, some shops and then the, at the Santa Monica airport, the, in the old hangars, there was one cabinet shop and a, a, a sculptor next door. So I'd bounce from the cabinet shop to the sculptor and, you know, weld and grind with the, with the sculptor and build cabinets and, and do woodworking in the cabinet shop. So eventually I got tired of the film business, fire, you know, tired of the entertainment business and just decided to dive into woodworking and furniture. And, you know, I would have some friends who wanted a piece of furniture or needed this, needed a desk, and I would make that on the side. Pretty soon I got the entrepreneurial bug that, you know, which is a tremendous illness that makes you think you can do everything better than anybody else you work for. That means, you know, it won't be long before you have to start your own business. So um, for better or for worse. So, you know, I continued working in uh, wood shops in LA and then uh, Lee and I met and we got the opportunity to move to Colorado to uh, house sit for this friend at a beautiful place in, outside of Aspen, old Snowmass. I got a job in a cabinet shop there. We did really nice work uh, in the homes in Aspen and 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 did a lot more furniture work. And I also had a, access to a shop at the place where I was living. So, um, and Lee and I got engaged. She came in, you know, and moved out there with me for a time. And that was really the beginning of, of um, me starting to make furniture independently, you know, and try to, trying to, the beginnings of trying to start a business. I was hooked by that point. And I was starting to source material from these urban timber, salt, small sawmill sources in Colorado and California and Arizona, these, these um, sort of weird and small, strange wood sources. And that was the material I was started using to make, you know, my furniture for, for clients. And, um, and that's, really been sort of the core of our work as it's developed over the years. We left Aspen, got married, came back and started, formally started a, our, a, a business there. And, um, you know, it was called Cliff Spencer Furniture Maker in Los Angeles, but we were doing, is the, the roots of what we do now. We were, we were doing furniture and we were working with these, you know, small sawmills and using urban timber but we were we were doing cabinetry as well i was i was doing cabinetry as well it was the you know pre-recession and it was just a booming a construction economy and um before you knew it i had a you know my contractor's license and had seven employees and you know we moved to a bigger shop and we were doing cabinetry and furniture and then recession hit it sort of changed everything uh we downsized and cabinets the cabinet uh, inquiries went away but furniture uh, requests commissions still came along and so we creeped through that and then started to grow again and eventually you know begged and pleaded for lee to come work with me and she did and sort of saved me from financial and emotional ruin <laughs> 
And uh, we developed that business there for a number of years until we then decided to make this change in 2016, um, uproot, come to Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from, to start this new enterprise, Alabama Sawyer, where we jettisoned the cabinetry part of the business, focused on the urban timber, the, the sawmill aspects, and the furniture. So long-winded, sorry, but uh, that's the origin story, I guess. But it all goes back to these roots of like what the material drove us from the very beginning. That was the, and it still does, that's the the main driving force of what we do is, you know, what is what what material do we have to work with? What do we like? What are we interested in? And how can we use that? It's your story. And I'm sure that you could have gone into so many more details about what actually got you from building on sets and in the movie business and display cases to where you are today and you left out a lot of details of what got you there but i see the thread going through your story from then to now and i had to smile when you said you got the entrepreneurial bug because i know that feeling and i know a lot of people who have that feeling where once you get it everything you look at is i would do it differently i would make it better i would do it that until you actually start your company and then you realize how hard it is to run a company and you say oh maybe maybe looking back they weren't running their company that badly so i <laughs> i i completely hear you on that and that also brings me to to something you were saying where you were going through your storyline and you said that you started to beg lee to come and and help you and once she joined up and you partnered up to work together you said she saved you from financial and mental ruin and i know you were kind of joking about that but at the same time i'm sure there's there's a lot of truth in that because as an entrepreneur and as somebody who has to think about their business all the time you can get blinders on and you can really you can really get stuck looking at it a certain way and if you're doing it right, then that's great. But it's very hard to look at an entire business from a, a 10,000 foot view, but also to run a business on the day to day aspect of it. So Lee, when you jumped into the business and came aboard, what did it look like? And how did you switch it from, and I quote, saved from financial and mental ruin <laughs> to, to what it is to what it is today? I will say that I I am not a um, business person per se. I I mean I went to art I went to art school and um, was a graphic designer. I worked at a financial services company as a graphic designer, but I did not do financial services. And um, so when I came in, the first thing was you know can you make me a logo? Then it was can you make me a business card? Then can you make me a website? I didn't know how to make a website at the time. Um, but but when I really came in, it was because managing everything and the money. There had been this construction boom. So you had to gear up with more people. Remember you had bought a um the Stray Big panel saw. So the, you know, this is um so there was machinery that had been purchased. Um we had, you know, credit card debt and um various business credit cards, but it, there was money coming in, but the money was going out. 
So, and every, and also, by the way, everybody loved the work. I mean, there was lots of accolades for what he did and how great it was, but it was, it was not a complete picture, right? It was just, it was, everybody thought it was beautiful and good work. So um, I came in basically, and we, we consolidated some debt, raised prices, <laughs> just got on top of monitoring money and expenditures and where was the money going. There were things that we like, since he sort of got the, the contractor's license to do cabinetry. So, you know, you're charging one thing when you're, when it's you and maybe a helper, but then when you have the license and the, then you've got all this insurance. So the insurance is expensive. So there was some getting in there and seeing if there were other options, just having the time to do to explore things, right? Like what, where are we spending our money and how can we improve it? And then on the, on the sales side, I mean, I didn't even really know, I didn't know a lot of technical things. Like I didn't know what the difference between like full overlay and face frame cabinets were. (laughs) But just having somebody to get the phone and reply made it so that we got more sales, we closed more sales. Right. You said that at one point early on, it's like, just that I'm, just that I'm here and I can answer the phone helps the business, you know? Right. Like just having a, there's so much work to be done. There's so many aspects to it. So I really uh, value being able to have a a partnership in this and be able to bounce ideas off one another and, you know, have a team. It's a strange conundrum that people find themselves in when they become successful when their company, when their furniture company becomes successful and the company starts doing worse. And you think, how is that possible? But when you're slow and when times are slow, you can really micromanage every aspect of the business and an order comes in and you can appropriately schedule time for that. And you can figure out all the pricing for that and you can take your time with that. But when you have a day that 15 orders come in and you know that tomorrow 15 orders are going to come in you don't have that luxury of of parsing out what you're going to do for each job you need to have a set either a person to take care of that or a set way that you handle all that work because if you can't scale then that's just as bad as not having any work coming in and having somebody to just answer the phone is a really big deal. You know how many people probably contact you and say, I've reached out to somebody else and their customer service was terrible and it never got back to me and I just couldn't work with them. So actually having that is a really big deal. Yeah. And and there was, it was a learning curve to be someone who, you know, where at first it was, Am I just acting as an administrative person? But of course, over the years, I've learned where I have a design background. So I can whip up a drawing and make and close a sale because there's this rough drawing with dimensions and some aesthetics to it and say, this is what I'm bidding on. So now I can do pretty much everything until making it. In fact, when I started, I'll say the first day I started, I arrived, the you know, I quit my corporate job, all sorts of fun benefits that we let go of. That's a, that's a, that's a story I'm sure you've heard plenty of times, but, and I said, well, when are you going to teach me how to use the machines? And was like, he's like, well, no offense, dear, but um, 
that's not where I need you. I, you know, I need someone to do all the other stuff. That makes me sound so terrible. No, but it, but that's what, that is what was needed, you know? And, um, I, I am a creative person and I do make things. I just, I'm not a woodworker. And I tell that to, I also say that to interior designers. I'm like, I'm not an interior designer, you know? <laughs> so there's, you can, you can only be certain. It's, it's good to know, just like you want to know what your business does. You want to know what you do in your business. I know you said it makes you sound terrible, but it doesn't. And I know you as a person as well, and I'm sure you both built furniture together. And over the years you've, you've built furniture, but when you're talking about it as a business, a furniture business, building the furniture is sometimes the least important part of running a business. And you scale and you've scaled and you have 10 employees that are working for you. And Cliff, I'm sure you're not building a tremendous amount of the furniture day to day as well. You have to figure out when you're running a business and you're scaling a business where you're needed and building furniture isn't always the the part that is needed. And I it's hard to it's hard to wrap your head around that as a furniture company, but I found that it's the truth. There's a lot of incredibly, incredibly talented people that couldn't make it on their own because they didn't know how to run the business side. They didn't know how to appropriately figure out who should be working where in their business. And I mean, over the years, we've definitely met people that said, oh, well, I was big for a while. And then I figured out that that didn't work for me or people will come to us looking for a job and saying, I had my own business, but I can't do it. And so they're looking to come back and, you know, what now seems better to not have to deal with all the other parts of it, the, the bookkeeping, the branding, the sourcing, the delivery, like you just make furniture. Yeah. Building, building your company larger and continuing to scale on paper always seems great, but it's not for everybody. And having a furniture company in general isn't for everybody because like we've been talking about, it's not just about building furniture when you have a furniture company. It's about running the business and it's about dealing with clients and it's about pricing and it's about having a corporate structure. All the things that that you were talking about and all the things that you brought to the table when you joined the team. I want to get into the building of, yes, the furniture, but sort of more the building of the brand around the furniture. And you were talking a lot about how all your pieces and the work that you do is heavily influenced by the mills and the local wood. And you're very into urban timber and you're very into the conservation aspect of it. Let's talk about the the iteration of your company when you were in Alabama, when you moved there. How did that that start with the sourcing, with the local sourcing? And how did that really dictate the furniture that you are building? Yeah. So I came in 2014 to this to speak at this uh Design Week Birmingham conference. Uh there was a rapid fire talk session and I you know, gave this talk about urban timber. Um, and I was really evangelizing the use of urban timber, the, the utilization of urban timber uh, as a means to make use of the great 
natural resources that, you know, they had here in Birmingham. So we did, you know, we were involved in urban timber in Los Angeles and we, we worked with a, a, a individual who had a operated a sawmill and I would meet him, you know, at the, an address in, you know, the middle of Los Angeles where a tree had been taken down. We'd roll the log out to the mill, hoist it up and mill it, put it, you know, quickly in the back of my pickup truck and then speed off and, uh, you know, sweep up the sawdust and, and speed off and find a way to dry it. But, you know, it was all very challenging with the, you know, massive density and traffic of Los Angeles and the cost of, of doing it was very difficult uh just because of the you know milling and drying wood takes up a lot of space uh and time and that all costs money so uh but we we did it nevertheless and and grew that you know that part of our business uh even with um making a developing a relationship with the city of Burbank uh they have a really vibrant uh sustainability department there and the director of the department was a friend and we worked out a deal to be able to get logs from the trees that the city of Burbank had taken down. And we were able to select those so that they wouldn't go to the landfill. Bur Burbank was under a zero waste initiative. And so they were trying to reduce, you know, their waste. So I was able to bring that success story to this conference, this Design Week Birmingham talk. And I was, you know, telling them how much, you know, we were able to keep out of the landfill and mill and make all this beautiful furniture. And then I compared it, you know, the trees, the amount of trees in Los Angeles that are coming down to the, to the amount of trees that exist in the, that are in the Birmingham urban forest, which Alabama has the second largest urban forest in the country, second only to Georgia. And the, you know, the amount of trees that are here in the urban forest is amazing. And, and the amount that are coming down every day is amazing due to end of life, due to storms, due to development, you know, due to a, a, a host of reasons, both good and bad. But there's just a tremendous amount of material. And the point I was making, trying to make in this speech is like, this is your town. The trees form the community, the identity of this place. This is your natural resource. And currently... What's happening to these trees at, when they reach the end of their life is this. And I, you know, cut to a picture of a giant tub grinder in a, you know, massive wasteland of a landfill chip chipyard, you know, where these trees are just being shredded into nothing. So I was really making the point that the tree services could save money by diverting their logs to sawmill operators. And we could create jobs by, you know, using this material that was a waste product, you know, a waste problem for them. We could turn it into a valuable product that could be sold and generate revenue, create jobs. You know, I made a big evangelizing pitch and it went over well. And um, we got some interest for, from some other individuals, you know, trying to kind of accomplish related goals and got enough um, momentum behind it to, to make the plunge and come over here and set up shop. And part of that, one of the most important parts of that momentum were the, the tree services here that I met with and spoke with were so happy and willing um, 
to work with me and to just bring me loads of logs to start milling. So both the business community and the the public was very receptive to this idea here. You know, people are very proud of their 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 city here, they're proud of the the natural resources here, they're you know, they're proud of the the beauty of 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 the the natural wonders here in in the south and uh and so it was it's always been very well received the concept has been very well received and you know it's been sort of an education for us and for our clients and our community to to display what a hackberry what lumber from a hackberry tree looks like what a table made out of sweet gum looks like what a credenza out of American Elm looks like that came down and was on Second Avenue North and was milled on this date. And so this local use of material has, again, given us a lot of um, a lot of energy and continues to drive what we do, inform the products we make and how we talk about them and inspires us for new designs. You can't deny that people who are getting furniture, who are really into furniture, are very excited to hear that the wood has a backstory. It's not just a no-name piece of wood being milled up and then sent out to them. Yes, there are people who are buying furniture just for the utilitarian use of furniture, and they could care less about where it comes from. But when you either hit a certain price point or you have a certain type of customer the story behind the wood is very very important to them and i'm sure that that helped a lot with your custom orders and with telling the story of where this piece is coming from for that order yeah as your company grew and changed you went from custom orders to adding a product line and now on your website, you have an entire product line that people can shop now and they can buy from. How do you bring that idea of this really individualized, special lumber that has a backstory that's so easy to share with custom furniture because you're talking one-on-one -on -one to the client? How do you bring that, that story and that excitement for the material into your buy now furniture collection? Well, I'll say that our we have a line and it's on the website and I will, but I feel like I usually email or talk to someone before they buy it. I mean, we do sell things, you know, where someone will buy a beam bench right off the website or they'll buy a table right off the website. And I didn't talk to them, but most of the time I still talk to them. So they do ask me about it. Also, like you were identifying with a certain price point, a certain customer who's really curating and collecting in their home, they don't want a 48 inch, they want a 49 and a half inch, you know? So usually that process is, we build it to order, they are using our designs, but they specify it. There's generally a conversation. So I can talk about where things come from and I can tell them, and they're always excited that there's a real story behind it. Like, oh, these, you know, this, this pine comes from, you know, the extras from the construction industry or the, the big mills and they can't use it because it's too big. So this is basically a salvage log. So I do have an opportunity to talk to people either on the phone or through email and just 
continue telling the story, putting it out on social media. You do have to keep telling. I mean, that is, I mean, a branding, branding thing, right? You just have to keep telling the story. Right. That (laughs) is the, you know, whether it's at a design conference or whether it's in a podcast like this, whether it's going to a convention, whether it's having a an opening, having a party, it's telling the story or or through Instagram or other social media formats. It's telling the story over and over again through different formats. And that, you know, people start to pick up that narrative and start to understand that you're something else, something other than just a point and click uh, purchase. There was, I was just in a client's home yesterday who we've made two tables for. They're talking about how much they love the tables. This is great. They love the bases because they're made, you know, they're, we design them and they're made here, cast iron and this, you know, they love the story. They they love the table and they love the stories. And we're going to work on another table for them. As I was leaving the house, there was another uh, piece of furniture at, near the front door, a walnut table. And I just remarked on it. Oh, that's a, that's a nice table too. That looked, and, and the, the customer was like, oh, nothing. That's from, yeah, but that's nothing. That's cheap from Wayfair. <laughs> but I mean, it was a it was a piece of walnut furniture. Uh, the table that we made for them was walnut. But the difference was the Wayfair piece has no story for them, so they don't. You know, there's no they don't value it. They don't value it in the same way. But the pieces we make have all this story, have all this uh, provenance, have all this place to it, and they so they feel a lot more connected to it. They feel better about it. They, you know, they like it more. And and we ship these everywhere. So it's interesting too. I mean, sometimes the person, the customer will have a connection to the South that, that has happened, but sometimes they just want something that has a story versus not. And, um, you know, so the, these folks are local. So the tree came from their re, the region or their, the town, but people connect to it in California. They connect to it in New York. They connect to it in Chicago also. I think more and more people, uh, consumers, discerning consumers anyway, want a story. You know, they they want things in their home, in their life that have an authentic story behind them, that have some meaning. We try to just portray what we do and who we are as a as a business and who our employees are and what the place is, you know, what the environment is, where where we work and and how we do it. I want to talk about how you're you're getting that story out there and how you're sharing it to the world. But it really it it, it jumped out at me when and this is a, a tale as old as time where furniture makers build custom work and then they decide to make a line of furniture and they put it out there and they have that line of furniture and then everybody gets so excited about it but everybody wants it customized. There's there's that aspect of of finally making that jump where I'm out of custom furniture and I'm I'm having a furniture line and then every single order you get is still a custom version of that and it's what I think small and medium size companies go through because they are still very much based on customer service. You're not going to call up Wayfair and say, I'd like a custom version of that walnut entranceway table. But when people know that 
that they're going to have customer service and they're going to have somebody at the other end of that phone or other end of that email that they can talk to, they're going to look for a customization for that piece. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, I mean, you're not asking me how to solve that, are you? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't think, and I don't think it's a solving thing. I think it's a, I think it's just what comes along with the business. I think that, I guess, have, I guess it comes down to having a line of furniture that you don't customize is incredibly, incredibly hard to do. And it's, and it's really putting yourself in a box with no exits. If you say, this is what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything different. Take it or leave it. And it puts you in a tough position and people succeed. And there's companies that do really well and they they grow and that's all they sell. But there's also that that needing to to sort of bend with the social wind and doing what you want to do your own furniture line but also being able to do what they want as well there's that balance there's that that middle that middle road yeah, yeah i think we have um we've worked on this for a, a long time i think like since 2005 when i started first started doing it you know lee and i said okay let's take a little bit of this our savings and let's put it towards making a line of furniture <laughs> you know, like I, I said, I had like five designs or six designs, and I just worked on these designs, produced them, photographed them, and lo and behold, you know, I thought I was creating a line of furniture. Then a contractor walked in and said, "Here's a stack of drawings for custom cabinetry, you know, for this home. Do you want the job?" I said, "Yeah, sure." No, so I love your rocking chair. Will oh, yeah. you make a kitchen for me? Right, exactly. <laughs> He's like the line of furniture got us a cabinetry job. So you you got to pay the bills. So you start navigating, you know, as best you can through those waters. But then it's it's all all along we've re-upped the drive to try to create this line of furniture for many years. And I think it's really been a uh, an accumulative process that now just a lot of parts and pieces have come together over time so that now what we have is, and this is like my elevator pitch for what the business does, we have a, a line of small products for the home, and then we have furniture products, a line of furniture products, and then there's customization and contract work beyond that. So the small products sell the furniture and then the furniture sells the customized, the larger customized products and and larger contract work. And I would say that the small products, there's little or zero customization. Those are products that we build up inventory of, we ship out all over the place. There's no customization of those things. The furniture products, and this is this over time, this work, we design these products so there can there is there can be some customization without having to reinvent the product. So they're designed to be able to be slightly different sizes, different finishes, so that the client gets that that sense of customization. But per our factory, we're making the same, we're doing the same work. We know what 
what to do. Then that third level, the contract work, that we we leave open for more room simply because uh, those those can be larger projects and really beneficial for the for the business for the year. What I was going to say is that's that's those are design those are designs and process, but they also affect the business from a cash flow point of view and a business perspective. I call the little products are like pebbles, the furniture or rocks, and the contract big you know contract jobs whether they're just multiples of the same thing or and those are boulders and so it does fill it fills everything in it fills in all the gaps and so that works from a like a financial and cash flow situation if i was a real financial person i would probably explain that differently but if that works visually it it just fills the whole thing with all the different size rocks it does i love that i love that visual and it makes total sense to me and i I kind of now want to use that when I when I talk about this situation. So if I if I if I talk about the the pebble rock boulder scenario, then I will I will always footnote it for you. Okay. Let's talk about your marketing and how you're getting your name out there on the local and the global market. You've had iterations of a furniture company, not just this one, other ones in the past. Your marketing must have changed dramatically as different media jumped to the forefront. And I know that social media is now really leading the charge in where people put their time, but you also must have gone through other options as well. Can you talk about what you were doing to get your name out in the beginning and now what you're doing now to share your story and your products and the the pebbles, rocks, and boulders of your business? Well, the bigger jobs tend to be based on relationships, you know, like a contractor who, those are relationships. I feel like you build a relationship with over time and then they come to you with something larger. We definitely, I think we definitely started with working with local contractors and sort of going back to LA in my head. And I would do a lot of, um, you know, emailing different blogs about writing our story. That's what I initially did. I remember that. Um, that was really important when you, initially. when you initially would write content for different blogs or for, you know, and, and submit it and, you know, do their work for them, have them post it. That got us a lot of weight. That got us a lot of, we, she did one for Remodelista uh, one time, a long time ago that got us business for years, for years, good business for years. But then that, that site changed, that model changed. And I think it just more professionalized. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not, you know, so, so that, I think that was maybe easier back then. Now there's a lot more people that are just really good at doing PR <laughs> um, and um, not that there weren't people good at PR, but maybe they weren't, they weren't approaching the blogs the same way. Instagram, we sort of were pretty early in there. We have, you know, mixed results with that. I've never, I've, we do a little bit of advertising, but not much. Um, we've been doing a newsletter for a long time, building up an email newsletter list, communicating, not a lot, not like a big company, but regularly and just, you know, getting in front of them on a regular basis. I've tried and and then we've um you know ad hoc things where someone will say oh you should do this an ad in this magazine and we'll say okay should we spend the money on that and then we'll do it <laughs> it's not you just don't yeah. really have the money to do that um effectively 
I feel like I do some paid lead sites now, first dibs and style row, because I feel like there's so much work you can do on your website in terms of SEO and contacting people, but you, you, you can go with people that already know who your market is. And I mean, it's just advertising, but it's, it's online instead of in a, in a magazine. Collaborations have always been really helpful to us in LA. We, we uh, were part of a group, we call it Boxco, where we got together all like like-minded furniture makers who were involved in urban timber or reclaim. or reclaim materials or something similar. And so we basically pooled all our mailing lists and had shows and had events. And that was very helpful to us as a brand, uh, as a company. And over time, any anytime we've been able to do that sort of thing, collaborate or include other people who are related to our work and processes, then that has always been been helpful. I, I'm again, I think it goes back to the story, you know, creating more and more of a story around yourself, your business, your work, and communicating that, whether it's through social media or you know writing content for blogs or editorial content. We've been able to build some relationships with people who like need things to report about, you know, these all these magazines and newspapers and and design, you know, blogs and they need things to write about. So the more you put yourself out there and communicate with them, the the more you become, you know, a problem solver for them. Having a good story is is important. We've talked about that, but you can only shout your story from the rooftops so loud you need to to partner with people you need to get that story out there in press and through all these different ways and so finding a group of like-minded people or finding a group of writers or media outlets can can take that story and just elevate it to places that you could never get to on your own because that's their job your job is to to build and to explain the furniture their job is to talk about it and and those partnerships are if they go well are always very very helpful to building your name and your brand along those lines selling your furniture story selling your actual furniture it helps to have people out there who whose job it is to get your pieces into clients' homes. And that is interior designers. That is the whole trade program. And and besides pricing, just normal pricing and shipping, shipping furniture, the next question I get asked all the time is about a trade program and how do you set up the trade program and how do you run that? I know that you have a trade program. Can you talk about how you approach that, how you deal with designers and what are the the basics that you have in that trade program? Um, well, I have something set up on our website so that designers can buy things at an automatic discount. It's it's not it's not huge. It's not like a big company, but they can get some discount. And then um, I also I email them, you know, about once a month and in, in a, you know, in a, in a newsletter and just say, you can always reach out to me if your project involves more things and let me quote it um, specifically for you and figure out the shipping. So I encourage them to 
to buy things directly from the site with an automatic discount, 10% on a regular furniture, sort of standard furniture, um, 20% on our small home accessories because they come back and they they start, you know, they say, oh, I love your ice bucket. And then they start putting the ice bucket in all their projects. I'm certainly going to give them a discount. And I know that they're going to understand the process better. So they they deserve it. You know, they're going to make it, e they make it easier on me. I can ship to a receiver instead of a house where, you know, they have to make an arrangement with the person to be there and that sort of stuff. So it's, there's a lot of things that it benefits me. It makes it easier on me to sell to them. And they're probably going to come back. Now, if someone's never bought anything from, from me and they're asking for a more intense discount and I don't know if I'm ever going to see them again, I just sort of stick with the standard policy is and they generally respect that. As you've built your company and as you've grown, you've added employees and it started with, with you and then it became both of you and then it steadily grew. Let's talk about your employees and how you've grown the company with those employees and the importance of having good people that you can depend on that you're working with. Yeah. The, uh, when you, I think when you start out with a business, you're looking for people to help you. You're, you're, you're desperate to have people to help, uh, accomplish the workload, do the work. Um, but you're sort of, you're sort of blind to how um, how to retain employees, how to uh, manage them, how to train them. Um, so in LA, I think we were very fortunate to assemble the crew that we had by the end. And it's one of the regrets of my, my life that I wasn't able to just bring them all with me. We found them all other jobs. We made sure they were taken care of. But uh, I really wish I would have been able to figure out how to bring them because they're wonderful, very talented, hardworking uh, people. But um, and we're still in touch with them and see them when we go back to Los Angeles. Uh, but then as we started this operation in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, Birmingham is a, in the South is a different environment, business environment, different cultural environment than Los Angeles or New York, for that matter. You know, outside of being uh, outside of a mega city, uh, relationships are less um, transactional. And I mean, I'm speaking in very general terms. It's not, you know, I don't mean to make generalizations that, you know, there's all kinds of relationships everywhere. But when I started working here, I found I really had to slow down good business, good relationships with employees and with vendors and with other, you know, trades came about from slowing down and having conversations. So that was interesting and unique and also maddening having come from New York and California where everything was like, let's go, what do you got? You know, what can I, you know, you know, everything was, was, was much faster paced. It has been an interesting development to sort of change the expectations change the pace of things, but still need to accomplish the efficiency and effectiveness of our, of our production of a business. Of a business. So what that has, you know, what I have, what, what that has brought us over time, I think is a much more, um, a vibrant 
and, and company culture with more depth. Now that we have 10 people, we have, you know, plus us, we've got 12 different personalities that are all coexisting together and you have to maintain harmony and you have to move the whole ship forward together. So uh, rather than, I think I operate so much differently than I used to operate 12 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, it is much more of a, of a process oriented operation because it, you have to make room for everybody's different skill sets, everybody's different strengths and weaknesses and everything you do, successes, problems, mistakes, it's all just a part of the problem solving process of trying to get the work done, of trying to improve the work, trying to do the best quality, the best efficiency that you're able to do every day, always improving, but it's a process. Every day is a process and every we're all just processes. So that sort of understanding or or awareness has been a, a is really a big part of us growing as a company and our our culture here. You the longer you do business and the more employees you have, the more it becomes about people. You know, uh, of course, the business makes a product and sells a product, but the whole thing is about people. And I've I'm and that's not new information. I've you know I'm borrowing that from other business owners I've talked to, but. Um, I really feel like that's an interesting and very valuable shift in my thinking over the years about running the business and having employees and getting the work done. This idea of a process rather than a deadline, a finite grasping accomplishment. Or accolades for the most fabulous design. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or getting some singular praise for, you know, you being some fantastic furniture maker or designer or something. Really, it's about creating a a business. A business that can that's always improving. It's always improving. There are people who are looking to have their own furniture company. They want to build something like you do, a successful furniture company. And there are people who have been doing this for a long time and they they feel like they haven't gotten all the success out of what they're doing that they should. Over your years in this business. I'm sure you've had a lot of good and bad advice that you've been given and advice that you've given to other people. What are some things that you could share with people who are in this furniture business and looking to succeed? Well, I think running a business, developing a business is not for the faint of heart. When I first started the business in Los Angeles, I dutifully, you know, went to the local office of the Small Business Administration and talked with a a counselor, you know, or someone who was retired in business. And the first thing they said, there's this grumpy old guy, and he, he said like seven out of ten startups fail within the first three years. So most of the time it's not gonna work. If you make it to five years, maybe you have a shot. So, you know, this retired business person's advice was just to discourage me. And, but that just made me want it more. So that's, I think that's the key is that 
you have to really be determined such that you can pursue it against all kinds of different odds and you have to make it work with all different kinds of side hustles and and other jobs at first or or um, other opportunities or you really have to bring all your resources in uh, to to grow it incrementally and make it work and you have to enjoy it you have to continue to find ways to enjoy it which is changing i would say like i'll say for for cliff you know first he was the head maker right designer maker but then i mean since we've been here he's learned how to use a cnc machine he's been the finisher at times like so he keeps learning different parts of the business to which is all so that he can better advise other people how to to better manage people who are doing it who are working for us but i would say that my i feel like all the advice i feel like anything any conclusion that i come to myself like it's all about the people or focus or it's all about telling the story they're all things that you hear you you've heard them i've heard them the whole time and then you also then just have to come to the conclusion yourself and then go, oh, they were right. <laughs> like, like all the things that it's never new. It's just something someone told you and they thought, well, that doesn't really apply to me and our business. Our business is different. But like when it comes down to it, they're all the same. <laughs> the, the advice is the same. Like you have to know about your cash flow. You yeah. have to focus. You have to, you know, try to find a niche. That doesn't mean in the beginning, you're trying to find what the niche is, yep. you know. Um, it's yeah. about your people. You have to, I think you just really have to be driven and you, driven to to accomplish it and, and driven to stick with it and, uh, you know, be savvy and and be willing to make adjustments and make changes depending on how how things are going. Um, but you got to find the joy, you know, if you don't, if you don't find the joy, then there's no point in it. And, um, and that's a constant renewal process. I mean, there's a, that's a really, a it, it grows and changes and what you were, what gave you joy one year is, is not working for you the next. So you got to find it in another way, but, um, to, to, to endure the long haul, you gotta find your joy. I love it. Well, now your voices will be added to the many voices that people have heard over the years telling them the exact same business <laughs> cliches. And when they finally and when they finally get to that point in their business, they'll they'll think back to hearing you say it and they say, They were right. They <laughs> they were they were right. They knew what they were talking about all along. I want to thank you both for, for sitting down with me and for sharing your story and for sharing your knowledge and the the business cliches that that will one day ring true. So I really do appreciate your time and thank you so much and looking forward to seeing all the success that you both have in the future. Thank you so Thanks, much, Ethan. Ethan. That was fun. That was great. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, 
or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.